0: a podcast that tells stories of successes failures and learnings for kiwi tech organizations i'm your host bradley scott and each episode i invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a kiwi tech organization's journey Emerged very quickly to become a fixture amongst the tech scene in New Zealand. With a valuation of over 2 billion New Zealand dollars and revenues exceeding 250 million, Pushpay is still growing steadily after its hypergrowth periods during 2014 and 2015. Our first two episodes talked about founding and fundraising stories, as well as growing product and engineering teams. This episode is going to focus on founders, CEOs, and the discipline of product management. So let's pick up where we left our last episode.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it kind of kind of relates to, to why Audrey's title was delivery uh, which he came on board because, you know, there's a perception certainly at, at a senior level that we didn't have a product uh, decision problem, we had a product delivery problem. You know, it wasn't what we build. You should just build what Chris wants us to build.
2: Chris wants annual giving statements. Why don't he, why doesn't he have them? Yet? Yeah.
1: So, so we don't have a product management problem. We have a product delivery problem. And the reason we, we were able to get them, get, get the, you know, senior leadership and the board across uh, why it was important to have product delivery was because we were losing engineering time to to make some of the decisions and to make some of the research do some of the research and and do some of the decisioning that needs to happen in order to build our thing and we you know we promised more capacity and more throughput more output from the engineering team in order to get there and it was once we started you know getting audrey and getting some horsepower behind it and starting to see the value of a little bit of research a little bit of thinking up front that we were then able to pivot the business into how product as a function was a, it was a net contributor not a net deduction
3: I'm Audrey Chang and I was first or near first product person to join um, Pushpay back in January 2015. I guess one story I remember is when I first started, I think it was the first week and I think we weren't even writing release notes at that time. So I was like, oh, I'll write the release notes. So we were launching this thing and I think it was the was the new home screen, I think it was called. Um, And anyways, I was writing up the release notes. And so we launched it out to our CS team. We're like, wow, look at this amazing thing the engineers built for you that you asked for. So, and then I sent that off and I went home. The next morning, I opened up my laptop. What do I see? I see a message from the VP of CS saying, thanks, Audrey, but this is not what we wanted, you know? And I think it really spoke to like that, you know, the scope of work was not really well understood. And like, I think for all good intentions, I think that um, you know, everybody worked hard, really thought it was what was needed, but I think without that sort of analysis and really understanding of the the problem, like these were some of the the early mistakes that that were that were made at that time, right? And I think that was just one example that I remember of like, oh, oh okay that's this is why I'm here <laughs> and i I've, and,
2: I've, and I've got hundreds of them I mean it's it was horrific. I mean I mean, I remember we used to just engineering would release features with no notice to anyone, no communication at all. And we'd turn on a new feature in production and be like, yay, this is awesome. And then I'd get a call from our VP of CS who'd be like, hey, so did you guys release a new feature? We'd be like, yeah, isn't it great? And he'd be like, yep. And because he's American, he would, he would say yes. But what he really meant was absolutely not. And and then he would sort of ask me some you know, questions that would lead me to realize, oh, actually, Probably it would have been helpful if they knew this before they started getting called by customers with problems with it. You know, maybe some documentation and maybe even a little bit of testing with customers before we turned it on for everyone might have been a helpful idea. So. But certainly in 2014, founder-led businesses tend to be driven by the founders and the founders were really keen to see their vision come to life. And so the engineers kind of responded to that. And with without any sort of mediation layer and product, it was very much like, well, the engineers are going to build what they're told to build and the rest of the business can deal with it but it it really created some cultural problems for us that took a long time frankly for audrey and her team to unstitch and restitch
1: yeah i'd just say 2014 was you know was a bit of a halcyon year as well you know it was it was the year where everything just clicked and everything started moving we we'd raised some funding we were able to execute we'd we'd built enough interest in the market that we started to really get some traction we were adding people to the business left right and center to try and solve problems that we had discovering problems that we didn't know we had so you know there was a a, certainly a, a a theme through 2014 which, which supports your narrative, Josh, but I don't think it was just engineering. It was right across the business because...
2: Oh, no, it was across the business. And, and the other thing that we haven't talked about at all is that in 2014, we were operating in two different countries, two different time zones, two quite different cultures, um, and there was a whole bunch of, you know, learning how to do that well, to be honest, that we needed to go through for the next couple of years. Were you going to say something, Audrey?
3: Well, I was just going to say, like, Chris was also really engaging, so we talked to, like, everybody. Do you know what I mean? So he would talk to everybody about his vision. And you know how there's this this common problem that when someone uh, of more seniority than yourself says something that they want, people go, oh, he's telling me to go off and do it. And that's, you know, and I think that's quite often what happened because Chris was very, like, charismatic. He was very you know, always selling, you know, always selling his ideas. And I think that that was one of the common things I think that I saw was that people were like, Oh, well, Chris asked me to do this thing. I was like, are you sure he asked you to do it? You know? And so I think there was just that, that balance of like understanding that he's, you know, spitballing his ideas. He's like selling his story to you, you know, rather than maybe necessarily asking you directly to do. It. I mean, maybe he's kind of testing to see if you could do it. But I mean, you know, I think that that's more that more often the case is that you know a founder, a visionary founder like Chris is, you know, um, sharing his ideas, selling you his vision, selling you um, his story, right?
0: And so, on that topic, it's an important one because it's almost cliche in product management circles to talk about the the founder CEO product dilemma, right? But I understand that less the view internally became that PushPay came up with a model that kind of worked and managed those dynamics in a healthy way. So what did it look like by the time you evolved that model into something that you thought worked?
1: Well yeah, I mean Chris loved product. I think, you know, if we if we were to pick a, an area that was his happy place, it was it was product and how we could Know, leverage uh, the product to solve problems, leverage the product to enter new markets. Um, and so he was always talking to people. He's always coming up with ideas and, and like a typical product-oriented founder, wanted to have a lot of influence. But at the same time, you've got to recognize that he was in America. He was building out our go-to-market business he was uh, working with investors he was working with potential investors uh, and so you know he didn't really have the time or the capacity to, to have constructive conversations with product and so we found ourselves you know sort of varying and you know, lurching from one point to another around what, what it was that was important and what we wanted to deliver um, and so what we needed to do is we needed to develop a process that would give Chris trust in our you know our product and, and, and product delivery. Um, process that he knew that what we were working on was was aligned to where he wanted it to go, um, and it just basically came down to transparency, right? It's it's it was a a quarterly and a monthly planning cycle that he would be privy to, and he would agree to what it was we were going to deliver on a quarterly basis, and we would keep him up to date through a monthly monthly process, and you know, the one thing we said to him is, look, you've got, a, you've got a veto card. You've got one veto card that you can play at any one particular point in time where you can say, this is the thing I need. And despite all of the research, despite all of the customer narratives, you know, this is the thing I need. And and, and the reality is he was so good about it that I don't. Like, I think he only played, ever played it once.
2: Uh, no, he played it more well, than once.
1: One, well, once while he, I was there. He,
2: he would play it about once a year. And and I think the thing, I think the thing that's underappreciated about You know, founder led businesses is that quite often when founders are feeling pressure for a particular feature or capability, they're mostly right, right? They really are shockingly, frustratingly right. Um, The thing that gets missed often is just the complexity of getting there. Um, Audrey's talked about annual giving statements. Like that was a, it's an obvious feature, it's a really important feature. But the problem is that an annual annual giving statement is a report of, how much I, as a member of a church, has given to a church that year. And the most important thing is that it's correct. It needs to include everything that I've given and nothing that I haven't given. But if Pushpay is only offering mobile giving and not covering the gifts that I've made via bank accounts or the gifts that I've made via property or the gifts that I've made via some donor-advised fund that my stockbroker has, then it's not useful to me. And so while it's really easy to say I just want this report, the accuracy and completeness of the data is actually a really, really hard problem to get right. And there was a lot of education that Audrey, she this is her story, she can tell it, but you know, had to do to get Chris to realize how hard it was going to be to deliver that feature, because it wasn't just a report to build. It was actually building all the intake in the first place for that data and giving reasons for churches to put that data into pushpay and not into another system in the first place. I remember sorry, I'm just gonna before I hand over to you, AC there was I remember a conversation with you in the first maybe 2 or 3 weeks after you'd started at Pushpay that I thought was the beginning of this for me and I remember you sitting down and going through the quarterly planning documents for the last two quarters and you made this comment to me and it blew my mind you were like you know it's really interesting to me that nothing we ever want to build ever takes longer than a quarter and I was like ah oh. That's a really good observation and also clearly not a true, like it's obvious that there are things we need to do that are going to take many, many, many quarters to actually achieve, but it needed someone to kind of come in from the outside with a kind of strategic lens and go. Some of these things seem like they might take more than six weeks to build team.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't don't remember that conversation, but I do remember. (laughs) I think. One of the things that helped, though, was um, I think we moved a little, Paul and I started to move things to a more thematic style uh, roadmap. And we worked together on that because I think at that time, Paul was probably fighting a lot of the battles, I think, um, and support, and trying to, you know, sort of move the change. And we moved to a more thematic style. So we tried, we tried to align the themes with the um, business objectives, which helped... F- help Chris to really tie back, hey, what are we working on? It's going to help me get to annual giving statements, but also meets kind of the key um, business objectives that we had set out. So like, for example, like we were, we had one area where we talked about clear blue water, you know, so what were we building that was actually going to create that, that, that competitive space for us, you know? And so there was a lot of things that we started to do to have the conversation of why we're working on the things that we're working on. So there were a couple of things we're going to help get deals, right? Deals today, which was what we were really focused on. But then it's also thinking about, Hey, where are we headed? And Paul was always big on this. Like, what's our clear blue water? Like what's like, what's going to hit us. What's going to smack us in the face down the road, you know? And so that was something that was always key in our roadmap was to think ahead uh, to, you know, where we needed to be and not just think about the tactical pieces that we needed to lay down to, Get to something like annual giving statements, and I think like having that those themes were really important because what it allowed us to do as well was to allocate resources to those themes and to make investment decisions based on how much we wanted to put into those themes, right? So it helped us to kind of align as to okay, well, if we don't want to invest that much, you're not going to get all of this thing. You might get three of these things on this list, not all ten. You know, so it really helped to make those trade offs. Helped us to really decide. And I mean, quite often, like we would sit and have this conversation amongst the, the three or four of us uh, prior to, you know, presenting to Chris to get his input and feedback so that we had an aligned view of what we thought were the most important things. Um, and then take on board his feedback to, and to sort of realign things and to make sure that we were tackling the things that were really important to him and that he felt were important to the market at that time. But I think the the thematic style um, and continuing to press forward with that and understanding what business objectives it was going to hit and how it was going to help us meet those goals uh, was really helpful. And I think giving uh, Chris more confidence. I remember once uh, Josh saying, I just got off the phone with Chris and Chris was happy that he can see one quarter. Uh, he has a roadmap. So I think that like, that was probably what I felt was like the first piece of like the first milestone of success.
1: Yeah. We, I mean, we would, we were in that sort of um, rock and hard place, right? We, we were trying to satisfy a board who wanted a roadmap that so that they could clearly see the investment and the invest and, and, and start to build an expectation of investment return. You had a sales team who wanted to know when feature X and feature Y was going to land and that's all they really cared about. You had marketing who wanted to know, you know, when do they need to get assets ready? When do they need to get the website updated so that they could deliver these things. But we had also from a product and an engineering perspective, the the desire to be reasonably agile. Um, to to you know to to do a bit of work, to understand a, a problem space and then do some more work if it made sense. And so some of those ideas just don't gel. They just don't overlap. Um and I tried to sort of pitch a view I never really got it across I never really got it to the point where I was happy with it, but I tried to pitch the view of a tree. That, you know, a tree has many branches and many branches have many more branches. And that we would we could tell you sort of what the tree looked like for the next few few months for the next quarter for the next couple of quarters but that you know where it branched from that point of where we put those investments in needed to be reasonably fluid and flexible as we got further and further out um and so you know if we discovered that there was a particular feature that was gaining good traction and that was worth doing more investment and then and, and branching a few more projects off we should have the freedom to do that and at the same time if there was a branch that was just not paying yields and not returning dividends that we should just kill it at that point and not continue to invest in it and the trouble you know trouble is when you put a a traditional roadmap in front of a board or a traditional roadmap in front of a business there's an expectation that you get to the end of it and I wanted to try and sort of allay that sort of expectation and try and sort of reduce something that was a little bit more organic never really got to where I was happy with it but that was sort of the the I guess the narrative we were trying to pitch
2: there's a few things I I was just going to say there's a few things that we did that I think probably made things unnecessarily hard in retrospect I mean, there's lots of things we did that made things unnecessarily hard, but just in regards to this, like because Pushpay had been so engineering led in, in the sort of genesis of it, um, and the engineering team, one of the things that we'd rolled out quite early was continuous delivery. So we had like full CI, CD all the way into production. You know, um, as an engineer, you could get code into production, you know, within probably <clears throat> 30 minutes or an hour, um, you know, in a day, um, which was awesome. But We were really unwilling to compromise that and it meant that we made some life really difficult for product and for marketing and product marketing in the future because we were unwilling to coordinate releases and in hindsight we solved this problem really easily by just saying well turning something on in production is not released you know we can do a progressive rollout or a test or you know have a, a, a early access group that we give this to and then we can announce it but as once like much later um, sort of 2018 time frames we moved to coordinated kind of quarterly releases and that really really simplified the go-to-market side of things in terms of training CS so yes, training sales getting the marketing assets and everything else in place and one of my regrets and i'm sure probably everyone else here agrees, is that we didn't do that sooner because it's much easier to have a big splash when you're having a release. It forces you to think a bit more strategically from a product feature perspective in terms of how do these things get announced together? What makes sense to to group? How do we kind of talk about these things as part of an overall initiative? And it kind of really helped focus things. And in hindsight, engineering had too much say at the table early and didn't manage to kind of get balanced in that conversation when it probably should have been balanced much, much sooner. One of the, I mean, one of the issues that we had uh, is that we had a board who were almost entirely, part I mean, maybe apart from the Hewlettches, not software company people. Like they'd never, uh, and then Graham Shaw joined, you know, much later, sort of towards the end of 2015. But the early board w- were not um, tech company or, or or software company people. The founders weren't software people. And so there was just a huge gap between the reality of building software and deciding what to build and how that gets built and the sort of mental model that people had. And we haven't talked about Elliot at all, and I kind of feel like that's a bit of a mistake because Elliot was super instrumental to push early success.
0: The Elliot that Josh is referring to here is Elliot Crowther. Elliot co-founded the company with Chris Heeslip, but left in June 2018. Chris remained as CEO until May of 2019.
2: And I mean, that guy can sell snow to Eskimos 10 different ways from Sunday. And it's funny, I remember James Maoko saying to me one time, like Elliot just sells from pure conviction. Like there's no, there's nothing apart from that. He is absolutely convinced when he's talking to a prospect that this is the best choice they could ever make for the organization. And I've sold, so I sold with Elliot a lot. Um, him and I did a lot of sales work together. And that man, that guy can sell. And, but the thing was that when he was selling, he was also hearing objections. And because he was a co-founder, bringing them back to the team and saying, I'm losing deals because we don't have X or Y or Z. Now, they weren't well curated. They weren't well validated. They weren't well anything. But he was a really, really important um, sort of conduit to say, hey, this is why we're losing deals. And I'm losing deals. And my team are losing deals. Because he wasn't just a sales manager. He was actually doing the deals. He was like, look, it's not just the sales team being whingy. Like, I'm also losing deals. And there was a really important strategic disagreement between him and Chris over what the product even was. We could talk about that but i remember the meeting this is a 26 early 2016 meeting but a meeting with him and chris and chris's office chris had this idea that pushpay was this horizontal payments platform as far as he was concerned he was building the next visa or mastercard and he used to talk about it in those terms if you go back and look at some of the early investor relations collateral you actually see pushpay being positioned much more as a generic payment service than as a church giving platform
1: well, we called it pushback, uh, we Elliot don't call
2: it was, church give. Yeah, well exactly, right. And that was that was kind of Chris's point. Whereas Elliot was like, Well, my team who are selling to churches are making all the money. <laughs> um, and if we want to win churches, we need to build features that solve the problems that churches have. And I don't know, Audrey, it's probably better for you to talk about this than me, but yeah.
3: Yeah. I think to be honest, like Elliot was an extremely strong advocate of user experience. I think probably the single person in the organization that really had a strong focus on that and really wanted an amazing experience for the customers. Like he was an extremely strong advocate for that. And quite often some of the things that, you know, he wanted, like a lot of the things that we ended up, we ended up doing it the timing just wasn't right for us when he was asking for them. But I think he really foresaw where it was going. And I think we ended up building a lot of those things, like a lot of the white labeling that we did, like the custom custom church apps, you know, all of those things were what Chris envisioned, you know, the branding, the church branding on our giving, uh, our giving experience, which we ended up doing, you know, all of those things we ended up doing, it was just the timing wasn't quite right for us to go down to that level. You know, we were just trying to like, you know, I think as, as Josh says, you know, driving while changing the tires, right. That's the mode that we all often felt like we were in. And so building those extra, you know, um, You know, uh, moments of joy, I guess, for customers, you know, was like was something that we wanted to do It's just the trade off between doing that and doing something else that helps to drive growth in the the business. And so, you know, trying to make the trade off between user experience and net new functionality that, you know, that that the business was wanting or the story that we were wanting to tell the market was often the trade-offs that we made. But a lot of the things that Elliot was advocating for, I always think back and and remember like when building things, like, ah, Elliot was advocating for this, you know? And um, a lot of those things we ended up building, but, you know, he was the single, probably strongest uh, voice for user experience. that that was at push pay at that time, and I think like for a founder, I think probably someone like that I I would say has a, a unusually strong voice for user experience.
2: I mean, he wasn't Elliot didn't train as a designer, but it was actually almost like having a designer as a co-founder from my perspective, right? Like he was he's extremely his his ex wife is a architect, um, and he was extremely tuned into the details of UX in a way that I actually don't. I, it's really unusual for someone who hasn't kind of practiced professionally in that area before to be honest and really astute like i remember dreading the sort of apple release announcements where they would announce new features because i knew that i'd get a call from him within hours being like so when are we implementing touch id or when are we implementing you know apple pay you know scan your retina or whatever i mean it's just you know every time apple had a new kind of UX-based feature, I mean, It would be like, when can we have it? When can I have it? When can I sell it? And uh, partly that was he understood that the shiny helps sell things, the sizzle, but also he just really passionately believed, and he was right, that the easier we could make the product to use, the better the product would be for the customer.
3: And I think that's why there was so much focus on the giving experience as well, and that's why 10-second giving was a thing, and then 5-second giving was a thing. You know, like we're constantly improving our payment, like the 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 flow for giving, because we're trying to make that experience the best that it could be and like the smoothest it could be for, for donors. And I think that was, and I think that's really the roots of where the success started happening, um, you know, with churches in those early days was around this unique, like no one had this type of giving experience for anybody. And we had such a strong focus on that and re we, re we, re, Reimagining it and re-looking at it and trying to optimize it continually. And I think a lot of that was driven by Elliot trying to say like, Hey, we've got to do better now. You know, this is old now. We got to make this even slicker now. Everybody's copying us. Let's like keep moving. And he kept driving us forward to actually improve and optimize that experience.
1: Well, it's it's ironic, right? Because the the whole concept was Elliot's. Um, Elliot and Chris had, had, had spent a lot of time together and they'd kicked around a few different ideas. Uh, that they were they were interested in pursuing, but it was it was Elliot who was coming up with ideas, and it was Elliot who came up with the idea of a mobile payment platform um and I think it was even Elliot who really saw the the value of of driving that into the church um and so you know if if we were to um you know, paint a picture for for who Elliot was for Pushpay, Elliot Crowther was the heart, I guess, of what Pushpay was, certainly in that faith sector, in that faith uh, vertical that we're trying to chase. Um, he was very much the, the customer advocate. He was very much the lens that we looked at things through uh, from a product and engineering perspective, and certainly early on. Um, you know, when I joined, uh, they asked me to look after the the engineering team, which at the time was two people. And they said, we've got a real problem. We can't get anything out of the engineering team. And I talked to the engineering team, and I said, they said we've got a real problem. The founders keep changing their minds. And so I sat uh, Chris and I went down. I said, you, you know, we we need to move to a model where you we build one thing. <laughs> like you know, we only have two engineers. We only build one thing at a time. You've got to choose which one it is that we deliver on. Um, and it was through those conversations that often it was Elliot who was right as far as what it was we needed to build next. I remember one massive argument where Chris uh, wanted us to build something completely different. I think it was the API. Chris said, "No, we need to we need to build the API. We need to we need to be." ubiquitous, we need people building on our platform and that's what we're going to build next. And uh, there was a massive argument where Ali said, no, it's got to be recurring giving, it's got to be recurring payments. We've got to solve for the customer first. Um, and we, you know, we wound up going that way. Uh, and it was absolutely right. It was absolutely the right call. We wouldn't have been able to close the deals we were closing at the time. It wasn't. So, you know, Elliot's importance in the, in the pushback narrative can't be understated. Uh, certainly, you know, when you're looking at, you know, the market we were targeting and, and how tuned he was to that market and what who the movers and shakers were and who we needed to get on board. And, and he was at the same time the person that was having the conversations to get them on board. He could sell ice to Eskimos. He could sell a payment platform to anybody he needed to sell it to, especially if it was a church.
0: And I think that narrative really sums up how influential founder influence is, even years after the organization's grown past a founding team. This is the last episode from our initial conversation with Audrey and Paul and Josh, and I want to thank them for the time that they gave to the recording of these episodes. I do hope to have them back again, and I hope to host others to talk more about Pushpay's journeys. This has been 6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know, and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.